All right, so what we're going to do, this is going to be another theological discussion. I've been doing a lot of those. I don't really like them. I don't really want that to be the bulk of what's on my channel, but I have a lot of them, and I don't publish things on this channel for what I would like to see. But so that it is helpful, helpful, sorry, for those who don't want to read or don't have the patience or time to, don't have the patience or can't, people who pretend that they can't read. Really. Anyways, so this uh, discussion that we're getting, we're not really discussing anything, I'm just monologuing, but um this discussion is going to be on the two natures in Christ, two natures meaning the deity and the humanity in Jesus Christ, in Christ the God-man. A study of what we call in theology the hypostatic union, and we're going to pull this, all of this content, content, all of this, all of these ideas, these thoughts, all of this from Martin Chemnitz. Martin Chemnitz was a uh, scholastic Lutheran theologian. We're going to be pulling this from Martin Chemnitz's Christological work called Two Natures in Christ. So, <clears throat> Two Natures in Christ uh, by Martin Chemnitz is a book written about the hypostatic union, written from, as I said earlier, the Lutheran scholastic perspective. It covers the entire breadth of the topic, all the way from the definition of terms used in the discussion all the way to the outcome that it has on the practice of our faith. This book can be broken down into a simple order of the person subsisting in two natures, the union of two natures, the communication of the attributes that result from the union of two natures, and finally, fourthly, the way that this communication affects our Christology. So to begin, Martin Chemnitz goes over the various terms that are used in the discussion of the two natures in Christ, and then he defines them. So the terms are uh, substance, nature, person, and attributes. He divides these between the human and divine natures, as well as between abstract and concrete. From this point, he builds on the idea of the person of Christ. Chemnitz outlines that he is eternal God, who in time became incarnate, one substance with the Father, yet distinct in person. The reason for this incarnation is the recreation, vivification, that's life-givingness, adoption, fulfillment of the Imago Dei, the mediation between God and man, reconciliation, and revelation, all of which pertain to humans, thus requiring God to come as a man himself to bring these gifts to all men. The true incarnation of Christ is defined through the scripture's testimony of Christ's bodily function and the titles given to his flesh. These titles given to his flesh regarding the true humanity have to do with it being of one substance with ours and of his human will being not contrary but distinct from that of his divine will. In this incarnation, Christ's human nature is not absorbed into his divinity, but the incarnation is a hypostatic union, that is, the natures remain distinct and yet unchanged, yet belong in the in inseparable union with one another. The hypostatic union is an act of the whole trinity by the will of the Father 
through the Son, by the power of the Spirit. And two natures don't come together to create a person, but rather the eternal person of the Logos, the Son of God, in time assumed a second nature and now subsists in both of them together. The enhancement of the flesh is not an enhancement of its essence as a nature, but a communication of the divinity and its attributes as fire when heated by iron. No, wait, as iron when heated by fire. During the time of humility, uh, that's when he was in the flesh before his glorification. Christ didn't always exercise the divine majesty through his body. Though once glorified, his glory was no longer hidden, but was revealed in power. The two natures in Christ are functionally inseparable. Wherever is one nature, there is the whole Christ working as a concrete person who subsists in two natures. The Logos assumes a human nature to his own person. Thus, the person of the Logos post-carnate subsists in two unchanged natures. The difference between a hypostatic union and all other types of unions is the perpetual inseparability in single personhood. In this union, each nature has a full communion with the other in such a way that the flesh of Christ is illumined by the divinity at the transfiguration and the glorification, although unchanged in its own essence. Heavy stuff, I know. As a result of this hypostatic union, Christ's two natures always function in union together. In this way, the two natures are in communion with one another, that the humanity is made partaker of the, of the divinity, and the attributes in both natures are made shared between the natures of the one person. There is in all of the functions of Christ two natures working in and through one another. In this way, we can say that God is man and man is God in the person of Christ. In the communication of attributes, there are three genera, which is a, a Latin word for kinds. The first being from natures to the person. The second being a cooperation between natures in the functions of the person. And the third being from one nature to the other. Now, it's important to note, actually, um, uh, genus, which is the singular way of saying genera. Anyways, the first and the second and third kind um, are oftentimes people use different numberings for them. So it's not really important to know um, this is second and this is third, because depending on who you're reading or who you're talking to, they're going to use a different ordering anyway. But okay, I'll give to you the way I order it. Take it or leave it. In the first genus, genus idiomaticum, which means attributes, kind of the attributes. There is no true communication of attributes from nature to nature, but the essential attributes of one nature are attributed to the person in concrete. That's not concrete. This book is concrete. It's not abstract. It's not an idea. You, you can't see the book. I hit a book. It's concrete. The key to understanding, well, first of all, so is the person. The person is concrete. It's a real thing. It's not an idea. It's not an abstract. It's not like saying, well, we'll get to this later. It's, it's just, remember, it's a real, it's real thing. It's a real thing. The key to understanding the first genus is that resulting from the hypostatic union in one person, the attributes essential to one nature are held in common with the whole person. So we can derive comfort, I think, 
from the first genus because a mere man does not have the power to defeat Satan, remove our sin, or mediate between us and God. Yet, if Christ were not a true man, his work would not serve for the redemption of men. The language which articulates the communication of attributes in the first genus assures us that this work is not the work of a mere man, nor an unfleshed divinity, but of the God-man. The second genus, also called genus apotelismaticum, which is Latin for actions, is seen in functions that only belong to, you you can just say actions here. Um, I'm saying functions because I didn't want to say actions twice, but it's seen in functions that only belongs to one nature, but are done with the cooperation or acquiescence of the other. If you don't know what the word acquiescence means, sorry. Look at it. In this way, both natures participate in all activities of Christ, whether or not functions belong to their essence. This is seen in the miraculous or redemptive work of Christ. It is the divine power that defeats sin, death, and the devil. But the Logos chooses to exercise this divine power in and through his humanity. Examples of this are in touching the eyes of the blind man the raising of Lazarus, and the death of and resurrection of Christ's humanity. This power does not belong to the humanity, but the divinity is working in and through the humanity to administer its power. In doing this, Christ uses his humanity as an organ for his redemptive purpose. Through cooperation or acquiescence, then, the person of Christ always works in both natures. In the hypostatic union, there's a non-mutual communication of divine attributes to the humanity, which exalt Christ in the flesh. This is the third genus, or genus myostaticum, or in English, majesty, the kind of majesty, communication of majesty. In this genus, Christ's human nature receives gifts from the divine nature. Unlike the gifts given to the saints, Christ's humanity receives the fullness of all power and grace. On top of the glory that Christ had according to his divine nature, there was communicated to him the glorification according to the human nature and exalting glory. This is what happened uh, during Christ's glorification and exaltation. For divinity can't itself be exalted any more than it already is. So this genus allows for Christ's divinity to shine through his humanity in a visible way, exhibited outwardly, uh, tangibly. We can see it. The communication of divine majesty is not essential, sustentative, or nominal, not nominal, nominal, but is one where the divine attributes are communicated to the flesh and shine through it. Some of the common terminology that used by the early church fathers for the third genus was deification, addition, and acquisition. These were used in a qualified manner to mean a partaking of the divine nature rather than an essential changing um, of the essence of the humanity into a deity. So it's not an essential deification. The example given is, again, fire, um, heating iron. Right, it's deifying the flesh in the way that fire fireizes or firing. Well, you know, there's a say firing iron in a furnace, kind of like that. Um, deifying the flesh in union. 
The iron does not become fire. In fact, the iron is just as much iron as it was before the union of fire and iron, but the fire has communicated its light and heat to the iron, which except for its union would not be had. The study of the three genera of the communication of attributes does not stay in theory, right? Maybe you thought it did, but it doesn't. I mean, this isn't just some kind of he heady um, ivory tower theologian stuff that you don't need to know. It's taken from scripture and it ought to be applied to our theology and our everyday life. Chemnitz goes into some of these matters to show how the communication of attributes can help us understand Christ and the functions of his office in an organized and categorical way. And that's set up to fend off ancient heresies, but it's also set up to comfort us. But some examples of these are Christ's ascension, the worship of Christ's person, Christ's presence with the church, the post-ascended body, miracles, and the state of humility. Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father was according to the humanity, because the divinity was always there. It is an exaltation of his flesh and speaks of his authority and co-equality with the Father. We can see this as functioning in the third genus, whereby the humiliation of Christ is lifted, and there's no longer a shadowing of his divinity, but an ex exhibition of it through his humanity. The worship of Christ is to be given to his person, according to both natures, following the first genus. You know, we're not just going to worship um, the abstract Logos, the Son of God, just one half of Christ. And we're not just going to worship Jesus, just one half of Christ. We're going to worship Christ as a whole, Christ as the God-man. Okay, makes sense? I, I'm sure this makes sense because this is everybody. What I find is that it's often the theologians who study too much who don't know this stuff. And the laity are fine and know all of this stuff. But I continue anyway. This is especially important, mind you, uh, so that we don't end up viewing Christ's body as a vehicle that only serves to carry around the actual Son of God and reject the human nature as being that which belongs to the second person of the Trinity and as his body. Kind of like a sock that you can just throw away. The man Jesus is truly as much in his divinity as well as his humanity. The man Jesus is God-man. You can't have, well, you can't, you can't worship the Son of God as this kind of abstract glory cloud or whatever some Baptists want to do or something. Not that I mean to harp on the Baptists. Kind of do that all the time. Anyways. If the Logos subsists in two natures, then he ought to be worshipped according to both natures. Although Chemnitz is careful to qualify that if his humanity were not in communion with his divinity, we ought not to give worship unto it. Not simply because it would lack the divine communion, but because it would therefore not be his. 
Christ's body is present with us everywhere through the divine illocal presence, not according to his essence, but according to the communicated attributes of the divine nature. This, perhaps, of all implications is most obvious in the Reformed and Lutheran difference on the supper. Both traditions agree that Christ's human body, in its essence, is stationary in heaven according to its own nature. Yet, the Lutherans confess that the humanity, not in the physical and local mode, but in, through, and with the divinity, is present so that while they might um, not say that he's present in the way that bread is present in the supper, they may say that Christ's body and blood are truly present in, with, and under the local elements and tithe thereto. The post-ascension body of Christ is not thrown away following the work of redemption that it was necessary for, but in fact, both natures are now present with us at all times in way of filling all things. To the fathers, that is the church fathers, the patristics, this was a source of comfort, knowing that their personal God was with them in the fullness of his person in a way that they could relate to. He doesn't deal with us as an unclothed divinity, but joins us to himself through and in our own human substance, meeting us both where we are and as we are to make us like he now is. The miracles of Christ are not to be explained as miracles pertaining to objects, such as Christ walking on water as explained by the water being frozen over, or of the water being miraculously made walkable to all creatures. Nor are they a change in Christ's nature, whereby his humanity is made one that can walk on water according to his nature. In truth, this miracle, the walking on water, that is, and all others are, are a result of the hypostatic union wherein Christ is exalted in the flesh by doing that which is contrary to his nature, but without a change in nature. Not by the ghost as he worked in us to perform miracles in the apostolic age, but by the Son of God's own power shown through his flesh. Finally, Christ's humility was not a lessening, giving up, or ceasing of his divine power as the kenosis theory teaches but it was merely a lack of exercise of this power visibly through christ's humanity this is the acquiescence spoken of in the handling of the second genus sorry if you felt like i abandoned you when i didn't explain but it's it's difficult to explain the word acquiescence in all of this material chemnitz seeks to promote orthodoxy and protect from heresy and and bring comfort to the uh, common Christian. He shows that Lutheran Christology is truly orthodox. It's not the Eutychian heresy or Monophysite heresy that it's often accused of as being, as shown by the essential change of attribute and communicated attribute distinction. Touching on how this relates to Reformed or broader evangelical Christians, this Lutheran teaching through contrary, uh, though contrary, sorry, to the Reformed Christology known as Calvinist Extra, which posits that the hypostatic union does not extend beyond the bodily frame of Christ's flesh, which is insane, is not contrary to the plain words of the Reformed Confessions, and therefore should be seen as a valid option for members of Reformed churches, and generally is the most common Christology among evangelical and Reformed laity anyways, regardless of their pastor's condemnation of it, such as it was mine and many of my friends' Christologies in the Reformed Church. To answer the question of how Christ can do certain miraculous things by saying he is God, it is entirely natural. 
It is only the ivory tower reformed and evangelical scholars sitting in their entirely reformed libraries, sheltered from the rest of Christendom and unreformed church history, that would point to the isolated human nature of Christ praying to God to receive enablement by the Holy Spirit as the answer. The perceived danger of necessitating a bodily presence in the sacrament is not founded in reality. If that's your concern, maybe it's not, but if it is, as the Lutheran view of the supper is that the humanity is present in, through, and with the divinity in the divine, illocal, meaning not, not local, and aphysical, meaning not physical, mode of presence. The second commonly held reform fear regarding the Lutheran Christology is that it necessitates that God died on the cross and that Mary bore God in the womb. Both of these issues were dealt with by the early church fathers who condemned those who will not call Mary the God-bearer or confess that God died on the cross as heretics. The unfounded fear of the evangelical reformed in this matter is that they misunderstand the fathers to mean that the divinity in its essence died. That is not so, but rather as the Lutherans and the early church fathers taught were things that the Son of God, the person, did according to the essence of his humanity and thus attributed to the person genus idiomatically. Through birth, illness, hunger, temptation, sorrow, and death, the divine nature was active, not according to its own nature, but in, through, and with the human nature, genus apotelismaticum. With these things accepted, one realizes that there's actually no heresy here, nor implicated issue with the Lutheran Christology, and that Reformed, Evangelical, or otherwise, all Christians should be allowed to, with free reign, I would say, hold this as true and biblical doctrine. Hopefully, that helps you in your Christological endeavors.